Our gospel reading for today comes from the 12th chapter of Luke, the 49th through 56th verses, and probably people's least favorite words of Jesus. We go from this beautiful baptism of this wonderful child to Jesus, not sounding very happy. Let us hear the word of the Lord as Jesus speaks, and he says, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, It is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Lord, who comes as a babe of swaddling cloths and in the fire of the Holy Spirit, set our hearts on fire for you, and may you be the joy of our lives and your word proclaimed in this time, the kindling of our souls. Amen. Now, who was it who started that fire? Was it Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Dodo Maggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe, come on, Gen X. Rosenberg's H-bomb, Sugar Ray, Panmunjom, Brando, the king and I, the catcher in the rye, Eisenhower vaccine, England's got a new queen, Marciano, Liberace, Santayana, goodbye. All right, all right. No, they... I am the very model of a modern major general. No, I won't. No, they didn't start the fire. Billy Joel, in his prescient 1989 song, reminds us that it was burning since the world's been turning. No, we didn't light it, but we've all tried to fight it. And humanity is well-practiced at trying to fight it, or at least reframing it in a way that we can digest. That this fire is something less potent, less material world, more spiritual, more mundane than its creator intended. I think if we're going to live in a world with a fire that's more like that of a healthy forest that regenerates and less like the fire of destruction and nationalism that seems to be raging in our public life, then we have to figure out where that fire came from. In short, Billy Joel presents us with an existential crisis pivotal to the future of our republic and our souls. But to put that question to rest, let's ask Jesus how the fire got started. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. 
Dear Billy Joel, you should have just picked up your Bible. Jesus started the fire. But now let's figure out why the Prince of Peace that we proclaim, this little swaddling baby in tiny cloths lying in a manger at Christmas time, would come, as this pericope suggests, not to bring peace but division, to have sons versus fathers and daughters versus their mothers and daughter-in-laws versus mother-in-laws, as if Jesus needed to do something more to make that a reality. But despite these tough words, and these difficult conversations that Jesus seems to be proclaiming in the text, so many great minds of the church have tried to gloss over Jesus' fire, to sort of sugarcoat it. John Wesley, in the 1700s, wrote in one of his commentaries, Wesley's notes, when he reads, I've come to send fire, Wesley said, to spread the fire of heavenly love all over the earth. Aww. But it's not just centuries-old preachers who try to sugarcoat this fire of Jesus. One of my favorite preaching websites I go to every time I preach to try and figure out what on earth is going on in the scriptures, I'm working preacher, a man named Eric Thompson. You know, with a name like that, he's got to be trouble. This Eric, with a K, said that the fire of judgment is perhaps about our own inability to save ourselves. The cleansing fire reveals that we need God. Not as much awe-worthy, but mm, I'm not going to say that Eric was wrong, but notice that both Wesley and Eric Thompson tried to spiritualize the gospel. In a text where we hear Jesus speaking very directly and very politically, very now and very reality-based, Wesley says that Jesus' fire is for propagating love, assuming that the fire disintegrates our elements of hate in our hearts and allows Jesus into them. He's not wrong. And then for Thompson, Jesus' fire comes while we're in the valleys of our life when we finally realize that our own power isn't enough to carry us through this existence. And through Jesus' fire, we are burnt into a place where we can receive the wholeness of God. He's not wrong. They're both theologically right. These are both true things that Jesus does in and for us, but they're hermeneutically wrong. That is to say, interpretively, and so looking at the text, what is Jesus trying to say? Now, the blaze Jesus wishes were kindled, the fire that he knows will cause division, which is one of those important little details that those other preachers forgot to mention. This blaze could be summed up by the cries of so many protests in America today. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Jesus is telling the saints that church unity, or peace for peace sake, cannot be achieved until the kingdom work of achieving dignity for all of God's creatures has begun. And once you see that as the primary mission of God through Jesus Christ, you have a hard time unseeing this. This political, Christological declaration, no justice, no peace. I was trying to understand that phrase. It's been around in protest movements since at least the 70s, and the rings of older constructions of the idea. Perhaps you've heard that if there is no representation, there should be no taxation. 
DC doesn't really want their voting rights, Julie, I think. No taxation, no representation, no taxation, right? Then there is this guy, James VI, who long ago said, no bishop, no king, in which he was addressing these unruly, culture-defying peoples, these kind of people that you should probably send back to where they came from because they're nothing but trouble here in England. Do you know who James VI was talking about? The Presbyterians. These unruly hooligans of the 16th century that wanted the freedom to worship as they chose. But James VI said if they wouldn't accept the divine rule of the bishop, they would get no protection from the enforcement arms of the commonwealth. Then in 2014, a little more recent, Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri, and people rallied in the streets crying, no justice, no peace. Instantly, our minds, the media stories, pundits, instantly went to this moment, this one moment in time. Should Officer Darren Brown have shot Michael Brown? And there's a Department of Justice report, two of them, one that came out seven months later and said that they believed that the officer had indeed acted in self-defense, that Michael had reached into the car and was trying to grab the gun. But the reason why nobody believed him, the reason why everyone was in an uproar, because the word of the police department was worth nothing. The whole municipality was engaged in wild, corrupt acts of racial bias and for-profit policing. That was the summary of the other Department of Justice report that came out. That one got talked less about because it's, it's muddier and more difficult. And we like left and right, black and white things in our stories, right? Who's to blame right now for everything? In this report, the anecdotes of injustice just pile up in really sickening ways. There's one incident, and I'm quoting here from the report. In the summer of 2012, a 32-year-old African-American man in Ferguson sat in his car cooling off after playing basketball in a Ferguson public park. An officer pulled up behind the man's car, blocking him in, and demanded the man's social security number and identification. Without any cause, the officer accused the man of being a pedophile, referring to the presence of children in the park, and ordered the man out of his car for a pat-down, although the officer had no reason to believe the man was armed. The officer also asked to search the man's car. The man objected, citing his constitutional rights. In response, the officer arrested the man, reportedly at gunpoint, charging him with eight violations of Ferguson's municipal code, one charge making a false declaration was for initially providing the short form of his first name, Mike, instead of Michael. And an address on his ID, which, although legitimate, was different from the one on his driver's license. Another charge was for not wearing a seatbelt, even though he was seated in a parked car. The officer also charged the man both with having an expired operator's license and having no operator's license in his possession. The man told us that because of these charges, he lost his job as a contractor with the federal government that he had held for years. 
And this is the one I could read out loud in church. A woman who parked her car illegally, it cost her more than $1,000 in six days in jail. In Ferguson, a single missed late or partial payment of a fine could mean jail time. It became very clear that arrest warrants were almost exclusively used as threats to push for payments. And it was a for-profit model. The folks from the municipal side of the city would email the cops and say, hey, funds are low, you should work a little harder. There was the boy who was attacked with an attack dog, and then when he was lying on the ground, the officer put his boot on his face. It, it, it gets worse and worse. No justice, no peace. Now, as your preacher, it's my job to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so far, I've only achieved to remind you that Billy Joel is real and that the world continues to be filled with injustice. Now, injustice should make us angry. It should make justice our passion, even a zeal. But the way to do it, the way we respond, how we live into that fire that Jesus brings is what defines a follower of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus brings a fire that divides the justice bringers from the self-servers. But once that fire refines, it can bring people together in a world of shalom like never before. Now in the face of those Ferguson police departments or migrant camps on the border, we have a choice to make. We can follow our gut and our anger at the injustice and like a tiny minority of protesters at virtually every public protest, we can damage property, we can loot, we can hit, we can get angry. After all, tooth for a tooth, right? Or, or we can join the thousands of peaceful protesters who channel that fire in their hearts. And to realize that that fire, as a Christian, is not against the police, but it's for them and a safer world for them to live in. A fire in their hearts, not against white residents, but for them, knowing that a world of greater economic justice is better for everyone. A world where our hearts are on fire for justice for black residents who have been overcome and oppressed. And to know that we can give voice, that we can share voice and provide platforms for those who have been squashed by police or more likely the anger of other injustices in our own hearts. You see, if you add a K and a W on that no justice, no peace business, you can also realize that if you know justice, you can know peace. Take a little while for the spelling to get in. K-N-O-W, no justice, no peace. We are reminded over and over again when we hear about this baptism of fire from Jesus, this baptism to which Lincoln was baptized today and that we all belong, that if we feel that fire in us when we see acts of injustice, that's good because you're remembering your baptismal vows. 
You're remembering that in these waters, I told you that we are bound to one another through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And if we see the image of God in every human being, we have to believe that in those waters, we are connected to every other living person on this planet. It reminds us that when we march for justice and when we seek for truth, we are not doing it against another, but for another. That we don't create villains, that we pray for the people who persecute us, that we turn the other cheek, which for Jesus was not an act of being passive, but an act of looking at the person and reminding them, the slapper of the face, that they are a child of God who is acting against their own nature. Indeed, it is this division that Jesus talked about, about father against son, where people are together marching, where they realize in the Christian way, we are not against anyone, but we are for all of creation. It's a tweak. It's a challenge. It's the one that helps us to put down our billy clubs when we want to march in the streets and hit something. But is the way of Jesus. I'm glad we have a scripture in which Jesus is angry to know that even Jesus gets PO'd by the world, by everything around him. He said, I want a fire and I wish it were already kindled. I already want the division part of all this stuff to, to break down. I already want for when people stand up for the other, that whoever's in power and feels that power fading away, that, that those acts of injustice are done and over. I was reminded by a documentary recently that when health advocates came out first for the coal miners, there is a whole group of people from different sectors in the early 1900s, business and otherwise, who said, oh, that researcher who is trying to provide for the health of those coal miners, his research isn't legitimate. Look, he's had a divorce in his life. You can't trust his word. The same happened in the 70s and the 80s when folks tried to lift up a very much smaller plight of children's clothing, the, remember the flame-retardant clothing? And people started coming forward and say, the researchers started saying, there's chemicals in here that may not be good for our kids. Those researchers, look at their moral failings. They're funded by this. You can't trust them. The same happened in Selma, Alabama. That Martin Luther King Jr., you know who his friend is? His friend is Malcolm X. They talk about nonviolence and he's friends with that guy. You can't trust any of them. And what did they do on that bridge but walk straight into the face of that division, into the face of evil, knowing that those police officers and the very ones who beat them were also children of God the fathers of their family, the mothers and daughters. That division was there and is very real for them. And so we march on. We march on declaring that if you, there is no justice, there can be no peace. But if we know justice, we can know peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, we're going to do it one more time until you get charismatic out here, folks. No justice. No justice. The good news of our baptism is that Jesus started the fire. 
Billy Joel didn't understand, and I know this because he said he didn't like his song. He said it was the worst song that he's ever written, and yet we are today singing it. So I wonder if perhaps the lyrics could be a little bit different. If we could say that Jesus started the fire, so we should keep justice burning while the world's still turning. Amen.